you know, I, I, I kind of go back and forth myself a yeah. little bit, but, yeah. but what would you, what would your answer be when someone I, says I mean, it's I mean, just I mean, the flu? You know, clearly, right? The, the mortality rate is not anything like the flu. The contagion rate is not anything like the flu. The two things that people talk about is this are not, right? For each person that gets it, how many other people will get it? And this thing seems to be like very high. We don't have the estimates yet. Seems well over two, and that's where you start talking about the danger zone. Uh, it could be way over that, like in the smallpox area of, of contagion. So that's what gets people freaked out. You're listening to the Steady Trade Podcast, a podcast that inspires traders to make meaningful strides and pursue their passions. Your hosts are Tim Bowen, the lead trainer at Stocks to Trade Pro, Kim Ann Curtin, the Wall Street coach, and Steven Johnson, the up-and-coming trader who's always willing to learn. Together, we'll sit down with experts to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and discuss how all traders can level up their trading careers. Welcome back to the Steady Trade Podcast. Um, back here with Kim. Steven is currently under quarantine right now. And um, oddly enough, you know, where, where Steven lives, uh, many to the list, to the longtime listeners, you, you know, Steven Johnson, our, our co-host, but uh, his internet at home is, isn't the best. And, you know, oddly enough, He's quarantined. Well, he's not quarantined. He's, he's sent home. He is. He is self quarantined. Oh, okay. I, I think because, because all of Dubai is shut down. Yeah. Yep. That's right. And he so, was exposed to somebody potential who's somebody who tested positive for it. So, so, you know, again, ironically, oddly enough, we have a, a guest that is going to talk about the, you know, the, the theme probably all of you are wondering about, um, you know, you know, what, what, what to look for what to plan for. I mean, uh, you know, from the land of penny stocks, which most of our listeners are, you know, we've seen last month, we've seen some wild runs. I mean, stocks going from, I mean, you know, we, we had a $1 stock go to $70 in one trading day. Um, you know, you know, when, when you get panic, there's opportunity. When, when people feel like they gotta get in a stock, that's when people are just hitting the bid, no matter what, or hitting the ask no matter what the price is. And that's what makes these big moves. So uh, I'm going to hand it over to Kim because the, the, um, the guest is a, you know, a, a friend and associate of Kim's. Um, so Kim, why don't you go ahead and, and introduce Zach and, and we'll get started here. So. Sure. Thanks, Tim. You know, I, I had a great conversation with Zach a couple of weeks ago about the coronavirus. And I felt after my conversation with him that I was a lot more, in tune to what was happening for everybody by way of the concept of travel and how potentially dangerous that was. And also just by the way of what statistics we were hearing. And uh, so I'm going to just say that Zach and I met about five years ago. We were talking about it the other day, right? And uh, it was at Battlefin, Tim Harrington's Battlefin, where you had been just, I think you were just chosen uh, was that the first one or maybe we met at one before that, but you were just chosen at that point. Describe what he, what, what, how, how you chosen and what was his, the strategy that you were being acknowledged for? Oh yeah, that was uh, a conference for emerging hedge fund managers and uh, it's a way to connect with seeders. Um, and I did, uh, did get an allocation through, through Battlefin 
it ultimately sort of meant that my startup hedge fund, um, for all intents and purposes, became a, a sub portfolio of a larger hedge fund. Well, I had other, other investors. If you get one of these, uh, seed investors, then, uh, then they become, uh, pretty important. And so there's these multi-manager, uh, hedge funds that are showing up as well as the range of other folks and, and allocating to, uh, to smaller hedge funds. Um, so I've been in the big hedge fund space for, for a decade or more prior and, uh, had tried giving it a go, uh, as an emerging manager. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it anymore. Um, it's, it's very, but, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm back, uh, on the other side of the very big bank now, um, dealing with our hedge fund business. And just so you guys have some background, he, you know, like he said, he spent his career in hedge funds and he's also a professor at NYU. He's been on the finance faculty at NYU since 2008. And he's spoken primarily to global macro portfolio manager for hedge funds at Fortress, uh, Graham Capital, and Fort LP. He's also been the president. Say that again. I was a portfolio manager. Okay. Okay. And uh, he also has been president of the Analytical Research, a global macro oriented hedge fund allocator and consultant, and a graduate of Wharton uh, and Harvard. And he's also studied neuroscience, which is part of probably why our conversations began in the first place. I'm sure we were talking about that. Uh, and behavioral uh, economics at Harvard. And he did doctoral work in uh, physics, statistics, and systems engineering at Penn. Uh, and to various... Diesel Beats! Did you, why, why'd you stay out of Navy SEAL school? Why, why, why'd you stop there? I think the only thing missing on your resume is like Navy SEAL. Yeah. Yeah. Focus, focus my skills elsewhere, but. So he's a smart guy, people. That's the bottom line. And and I also think you're very down to earth. And I feel that you also just have a way of linking things together that other people maybe don't see really linked together. So just with all that's going on, what's your take right now for the, the audience that we have, the day traders that we have? You know, that this they've never seen anything like this because nobody's ever seen anything like this. So what would you say is something that you want to speak to that would be of value for them and what they have ahead of themselves in the next few weeks? Yeah, well, so looking at the data on the virus, this was um, real hard to sort of figure out what was going on. Um, the virus started in China and the original data came out of China. And we have a problem that you can't trust what comes out of China. They literally have a large division of their government called the, the Department for Propaganda, right? So uh, Chinese um, dissidents and activists, uh, Ai Weiwei, for instance, the original doctors who were reporting on this, all of them were saying that China is lying about this, that this is much more serious, that the mortality rate is more serious, it's much more contagious, that they're that they're hiding the cases, that they're not reporting the true number of cases, that they say that there's only 300 cases in a province, but that province is running out of body bags, that, that kind of thing, right? So we initially had this problem that the data coming out of China uh, was unreliable. Then we started getting cases in Europe. Now, the cases in Europe were painting an entirely different perspective, and that was uh, an incredibly scary one in that um, – 
day after day, Italy especially was reporting about 45% mortality rates. Um, we're only now beginning to figure out why they weren't coming out with cohort data. Um, it was a, a paper just published online on um, the JAMA website, the JAMA network, about what the cohorts in Italy look like. It looks as though Italy is predominantly reporting people with pre-existing conditions and then, uh, and then attributing the death of corona. But a lot of um, their cases are people with ischemic heart disease, cancer, things like that. Um, and a lot are in the, the older cohort. So that seems consistent with what we're saying. However, it's a, a much higher mortality rate than we we're looking at before. But uh, when the market was initially tumbling, we were looking at this situation of, whoa, was the propaganda just so far off that this is something that is just a superbug that is incredibly contagious and incredibly deadly um, on the order of 45% mortality? Um, Italy is still is still reporting that, but it seems as though maybe the healthy cases are, are just not being reported. People who are able to fight it off. Now, there's also this uh, these reports coming out of uh, France and Italy and other places. They were saying that a lot of their beds were occupied by people who were young. And the initial CDC report said that the largest cohort of people in the United States uh, is young people occupying ICU beds. That's people between 20 and 45 years old. Uh, so we're just beginning to figure that out. It probably does have something to do with comorbidity factors. Um, the epidemiologists have been talking about, you know, we have a, a high obesity rate, for instance, in the U.S. And we, um, expected that there's a higher more, uh, more mortality rate with um, the obese, um, as with other pre-existing conditions certainly with our elderly, but we are seeing these cases coming out today of healthy 25-year-old people who are, uh, who are dying. And, uh, and it's, it's really, it's unclear why. We're still in this place. Maybe when the video comes out, we'll have more information. But I suspect this is going to be one of those things where even down the road, people are saying, what, what was the deal with that? Uh, even, when, even when this passes, uh, I think this will be something where people kind of feel like the story, the story didn't, uh, didn't add up. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, I think, uh, I've done a lot of forecasting on where this is going to go. What is surprising to me is that people are talking about statistical models that are not fitting the way epidemiology works. So a lot of people are talking about exponential growth and thinking about what could be the potential number that get infected over a period of time? Uh, talking about, for instance, that um, that you that we're currently doubling the number of people who are infected every three days. But it's been known for almost 200 years that uh, diseases do not just grow exponentially; they fit a bell curve in terms of how many cases there are. It's called Farr's law. It was this uh, the original epidemiologist really was this guy William Farr in the 1840s and England, um, studying uh, typhoid and things like that. Um, so uh, he said that it fits a bell curve. And when you fit this or really kind of any of the other diseases to, to a bell curve, uh, it gets a pretty good fit. So you're just fitting the, the normal distribution. Um, so if you fit Italy's data to, uh, to the bell curve, it fits very well. So again, it, it's really the idea that, that 
uh, new cases fits a bell curve or that your total number of cases would fit a cumulative normal distribution or kind of like an S shape, right? So if, if you look online at the World Health Organization data for, for China or for Italy or something like that, it's tracking that sort of S shape. But we're still, um, for the United States and even really kind of for Italy on the first half of that curve. So it just looks like the exponential growth period. But you hit an inflection point and then, uh, it starts to slow down. What do you say? One, what do you, go ahead. I was gonna say one reason why it's hard to estimate where we're headed in the U.S. is this issue of, uh, lack of testing and, um, and what the numbers really are. Uh, there was a study that, came out of Columbia Public Health um, last week that estimated that there's probably right now about 11 times as many cases in the U.S. as there are reported. Um, so that might put us in, in the neighborhood of 600,000 cases or something like that that are actually going on. Um, and so they did that estimate using census data and uh, World Health Organization database. So it was a, kind of an interesting study, but um, when I put that to numbers, it actually turns out that probably you're not just taking the mortality rate and multiplying it by 11. Because probably what's going to go on there is that the vast majority of these unreported cases currently are people who are never going to present to the hospital and probably have very low uh, mortality rates. I know people right now who are dealing with the coronavirus. They're fighting it at home. They seem to be... Um, recovering well or, or having a hard time of it, coughing a lot, but it does not seem that they're ever going to be going to a hospital. Uh, I think that there's probably a lot of those. None of the friends that I know are part of the official reported um, statistics. Yet. And uh, I think that there's a lot of that. So I think ultimately where we go, um, I've, I've fit it to a FARS law uh, bell curve. We're probably looking at around a million, 1.1 million cases in the U.S. Um, now, there's a, a question of how many of those will ever be ultimately reported. A lot of the guidance in the states like New York is to not get tested unless it would change the clinical result. Makes sense from a medical standpoint, but then ultimately we don't know, um, you know, from a data standpoint where it's headed. So we might get around a million, 1.1 million cases. It might be that 75% of those are never reported. Um, it might be that we only clinically are aware of a million cases or something like that. Um, in that, in that scenario. Um, and then the mortality is, is hard to estimate. Um, I would expect we're going to see relatively high mortality in the same way that Europe did, uh, amongst those who present, right? Amongst the obese and the elderly and the smokers and the people with cancer and the people with compromised immune systems. And that kind of thing. Um, amongst the vast numbers that it seems like are not presenting, um, at the hospitals. In, in the U.S., you expect low mortality. Um, and so, you know, that might, uh, it's real real tricky to put numbers on this, but that might work out to somewhere in the neighborhood uh, of 7% on, on all cases or something like that. Um, that puts you in the neighborhood of about 70,000 deaths in the U.S., which is only a little bit above a bad case. Um, which would, so that's, that's, that's going to be my, you know, my first question is, is yeah. you know, you know, there's, you know, there, there's, there's the crowd, you know, whether it be online or wherever that says it's just the flu, you know, and, and, you know, I, I, I kind of go back and forth myself a yeah. little bit, but, yeah. but what would you, what would your answer be when someone I, says I think, it's I just the flu? You know? 
clearly, right? The, the mortality rate is not anything like the flu. The contagion rate is not anything like the flu. The two things that people talk about is this are not, right? For each person that gets it, how many other people will get it? And this thing seems to be like very high. We don't have the estimates yet. Seems well over two, and that's where you start talking about the danger zone. Uh, it could be way over that, like in the smallpox area of, of contagion um, or mumps or measles, these kinds of things that are just massively uh, contagious. So that's what gets people freaked out. The mortality is also clearly much higher than the flu. Um, and, and we're just, you know, we're still grappling with the data. However, there's a different question of how many people will this ultimately kill this year in the United States? And that might end up being uh, in, in a moderate range as compared to a disease. Now, there's a, this psychological thing um, of, okay, so if it's, if it's let's say it's 100,000 deaths, I think, you know, it, it could range anywhere sort of in this range of like 60 to 150 or something like that, depending on the actual mortality rate. But so is 60,000 deaths, if you have the bottom end of that range, is that one flu season or is that 2911s? Right? It, that's an equivalent number of deaths, but psychologically. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> no. And for the markets, it's not. Right? So it matters a lot how people think about these risk events. And it's very well established in the behavioral economics and behavioral finance literature that people do not think about risks or deaths in the same way. Some deaths are incredibly bad and some risks are incredibly bad and some aren't. We just deal with the idea that people die of heart disease and flu and things like that, and that's okay. We do not deal with the idea that people die of school shootings or terrorism or pandemics, and that's not okay, right? Um, and so, you know, clearly we see this, this freaking out. It, I mean, there's this interesting hypothetical question. If we had told you in advance, okay, hey, look, we're looking at 60,000 deaths, what, what would have been the answer? Now, it's clear that what from the original data was being said, particularly in, inside the government, that these policies were based upon information, that this is not 60,000 deaths. So it's an interesting hypothetical, what would have come for the Senate? But we know that they told the Senate Intelligence Committee something that they all ran out and immediately sold all of their stuff. Right? Exactly. They told them something real bad, right? It was not 60,000, right? Um, So we will have to do, you know, um, a post-mortem, bad bad term, um, but after the fact to say how much of this was based on bad math, how much was based upon the efficacy of social distancing and policy. I think probably what will happen is we will say we kept it down to 60, 70,000, the social distancing worked, the policy worked. When in fact you'll be able to go back after the fact and say, it was really kind of bad math to begin with. Okay. Maybe the social distancing worked. However, we weren't ever looking at millions of deaths uh, to begin with. We, maybe the social distancing got it down from, 120 down to the 70 we saw or something like that. Um, but we didn't know when they were creating this policy. And there's still a lot of people running around out there thinking that millions is still on the table. I, I think it's not, but you know, at the, at the same time, and this is like, it's writing a massive put option. Do you want to write a massive put option on millions of lives? Are you that sure about your model? Right. Um, it's a dangerous call. I would not envy those policy makers 
you know, who have to deal with this decision of saying, okay, let's, uh, let's let off on uh, the contraction a little bit because uh, this is behind us. But, you know, I, I think in hindsight, probably um, if we had more information, we could have said, hey, listen, there's a vulnerable part of the population and those people really need to lock down. Right. right. We really need people who are 65 and older to be doing what everyone is doing right now. We need anybody who has really like a BMI. Now, do you do you think that that's um, do you think that that was a conscious choice to keep that information, or or do you think it was just a a fuck up? You know, yeah. <laughs> what's your opinion? Obviously, it's hard. It's hard to say. I mean, I I think um, yes, people have a hard time in a crisis and, and are overwhelmed. Um, so it's possible to imagine that things slip through the cracks. Um, also people are not always great at communicating information. Politicians have for decades been bad at communicating what it is that people really want to know and giving evasive answers and boilerplate type responses. Um, so they're, they're trained to do that. Um, and I, I could see that they would have consciously thought, um, Hey, listen, we're gonna we're gonna get people to freak the hell out if if we say that we're currently estimating that millions of people could die. Um, and uh, you know, we saw a run on toilet paper, but you know, could have I could understand that they would have thought there's gonna be rioting in the streets if if you say that millions of people are gonna die. So let's keep that to ourselves. But you know, I think uh, on, on the China side, for sure, it, it was it was deliberate. Um, sure, and, sure. and deliberately misleading to, to the world um, and, and misleading not only so that they didn't look bad, but also so that they could look good on the other side of being like, hey, look at how great our communist system is. It just, you know, communism works. We were able to lock down and, and they were able to get people in the West saying this narrative that they try to advance that that freedom will be our downfall. Right. I mean, you, you heard people saying this, yeah. the West. What? Like, that's that's China's line. Are you kidding me? Like, but somehow with their propaganda, they were able to get people, even in our world, starting to repeat their propaganda. Um, so I think over there, for sure. Very different. Tim, did you, well, did you, you want to you, 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 you tried asking the question earlier. So. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. So, <laughs> I've got so more. What, I got more. Okay. Okay, cool. Okay. So, Zach, what do you feel for the day traders who are watching us that they need to be on the on the lookout for not not just from you know the concept that they too are being impacted emotionally by this, uh, but also just around the strategy uh, that probably everybody else is operating out of this great fear and or potential misinformation. Yeah, well, so you know, as you're day trading, I'd say from the behavioral finance standpoint, it's uh, it's always hard to disentangle your own personal life and feelings and what you want to happen from the trades that you put on. And I think we all experience that if you're trying, if you're trying to day trade. So um, you may have an opinion about what you want this stimulus package to be. Uh, You may have an opinion that, uh, that, Bernie Sanders is the worst and he's going to be obstructionist. So you want to put on a trade because that's your political. You may think that Trump and the Republicans are the worst and that this is just going to be a bailout to help their best friends. And it's not going to help the average person. So you want to put on a trade around that. And it's hard to disentangle 
your political beliefs, your emotions, that kind of thing from what trade is actually going to work. The market doesn't care what your opinion is, what your feelings are, right? And, you know, caution to the trader who trades based on their feelings or emotions rather than, rather than the reality or facts. And in this environment, it's very hard if you are very worried about your own health, about your own situation, about what you see going on around you, to not be bearish. At the same time, if you're in an environment where you say, this really doesn't look like that big of a deal. I don't know anyone who's sick. The businesses around me aren't shutting down. This whole thing is overblown. It's hard to not be bullish. Right. And that's just your personal experience. Watch out to the trader who is trying to take their personal beliefs about politics, their personal emotions, or their personal experience, whether good or bad in this, and try to map that onto trades because you're, you're going to be very frustrated when things uh, do not pan out your way. Um, that's, that, that's one thing. And then, you know, ultimately also I would say um, there's going to be this weird thing that you have to figure out of the day-to-day, minute-to-minute, we're trading on the headlines. Ultimately, the performance over the next month or three months or something like that is going to depend on the macro, right? So somehow you have to figure out how you're striking the balance on that. Um, and a lot of people are, I feel like they have a very hard time even benchmarking the macro right now, much less what's going to happen in, in the headlines. Um, so I, I think you kind of have to take a view on where you think this is headed in the macro. And, uh, and that's probably what's going to play out over the next uh, month and three months. And, and that kind of Can I ask what informs you when you have a macro uh, perspective for those who are new at this, perhaps macro is con- you know hopefully the term is not new to them, but I think that there are some who are young enough or inexperienced enough that might be like hmm, i 've never really thought about that yeah. yeah yeah well so um you know so some people you know also call this like the top down yep. approach too. you might you might think of it that way um, but here's here 's where I say I think probably a lot of your most interest in equities i 'll start there I do a lot of bonds and foreign exchange as well. So uh, I can speak to that. But so on the equity side, um, we know hopefully if you've studied some finance that uh, assets are worth a discounted present value of their expected future cash flows, right? So what we have is a fraction, right? We're really sort of adding up the sum of fractions. We could sort of uh, simplify as just one fraction. We got the cash flows on top and we've got our, our discounting on the bottom, right? So, uh, you know, when you hear people talking in the market, they're usually talking about either the numerator or the denominator. They're talking about earnings or they're talking about valuations. Valuations is the denominator. Earnings is, is the numerator, right? So we've got uh, macro ways that, that we can think about both of those things. I'll, I'll start with the numerator with, with the earnings perspective. On the bull side, if you think that we can bounce back to – the sort of profit levels that we were before, then this is ultimately not that big of a deal because whether you're talking about one quarter, two quarters, or even three quarters, what you're pricing with the stock is the whole stream of earnings in the whole future. So one or two quarters is not that big of a deal in the scheme of the decades of earnings that you're ultimately paying, right? 
So with the discounting, most of the stock price is based around the next 20 years of earnings or something like that. But even so, one or two quarters, even three quarters, in the scheme of 20 years, not that big of a deal. However, what is being under-discussed is the idea of why might earnings not bounce back to that place, right? So first of all, GDP growth could not resume back to its uh, um, previous place. True. Um, but even more importantly, what people skip over is the step that corporate earnings are the same as GDP. They are not. They are a component of GDP. And coming into this for the past 10 years, post-crisis to the last measurement that the Bureau of Economic Analysis put out, corporate earnings as a share of GDP has been near all-time highs. There's really kind of only been one time in history that it was ever higher as a share of GDP, and that was in 1929. And then in the Great Depression, it, it dropped to all-time lows, right? So it has, for the past 10 years, been in the neighborhood of 65 to 7.5% of GDP. The average is more around 4 4.5%. Now, not only does this thing tend to mean revert over time with cycles, it mean reverts for specific reasons. When you have recessions, when you have crises, it's bad to be a capitalist, right? So capitalism works because the cost of capital is higher than the growth rate. That's what gives our assets a positive value, right? Or, you know, if you read that book, Capitalism in the 21st Century, Piketty's book, he talks about this, this concept that capitalism works, that people get richer and richer when it's a good deal to be a capitalist, right? When there's no crisis. However, when there is a crisis, then it's a bad deal to be a capitalist. It, it is destruction of capital, and the share of earnings that go to the capital owners goes down, and it goes down in favor of the other components of GDP, like labor income or government income. So if you believe that this is going to be a crisis and a recession, usually crises and recessions tend to be bad for capitalists and tend to pull down the corporate profits share of GDP, not just for the period of recession, but for a more extended period of time, especially if it sort of creates uh, social restructuring or something like that, for instance, as it did in, uh, in the Great, Great Depression or something like that, where you have a societal and uh, policy-based reshift in, in income, right? So as we know, we were already coming into this in a situation where there's a lot of populist agenda, where you have wealth inequality at an all-time high, and you got corporate profits at an all-time high share of GDP. The bull argument is premised on the idea that despite having whatever this crisis is, that it will be a flu season and we'll be back to good times for, for a capitalist. However, if you think that we dip down to corporate profits being an average share of GDP as it has been over the past century or even less, then you're talking about the numerator being 30, 40% less than it was coming into this crisis. So we haven't even gotten down 30 to 40% yet on, on stock. And that would just be from corporate profits for an extended period occupying a lower share of GDP. Then we also have this other issue of what happens with the denominator, which is valuations and the discount rate. Also not a good situation. We're coming into this near all-time historic highs on, on GDP. Now, 
we sort of had a high period for the past two years. We it had seen even higher valuations, probably depending on how you measure it, in the dot com period, very briefly at the end of 2000. We also had similar valuations in 1929. But we were coming into this with very high valuations, which, to keep it simple, is essentially about the risk premium that investors command, right? That uh, how much do I discount that specific type of cash flow, which is to say corporate profits? And as I have more uh, more risk aversion, I demand more rate of return if I'm going to invest my money into a stream of corporate profits. Therefore, I pay less in the present to receive those corporate profits in the future, right? So higher discount rates from a higher risk premium brings valuations down. Now, again, if we just got back to our average place in valuations, which of course is what tends to happen in recessions, that you get down to average or less, if that happens, then we also get another 30 or 40%. So once you start talking about 30, 40% times another 30, 40%, you could start talking about a drop of 60 to 80% from the all-time highs um, on, on S&P. Um, and, uh, and maybe even dipping, uh, below that range, um, in, uh, in, in a moment of panic or during a recession or something like that. So we've got a bull argument that we could rally back to, you know, only 10 or, or 5% below the high on the bear argument. I could see saying that you get S and P down to a thousand or less, right? Um, you know, our all-time low during the crisis was 667. Um, I could see a case just from corporate profits revaluing to average and the discount rate coming back to average. I could see us getting down below a thousand. So, so that way, you know, great explanation. Thank you. So, so I guess I'd like to get a, you know a little bit of your opinion. I mean, I again, I know we're you. I mean, obviously, the data is very limited. We know very little, but I mean. Where, where do you think we're headed with this? What, you know, I, obviously limited data, but yeah, yeah you yeah. taking the bear side or are you taking the bull side? I mean, where, where do you think we're headed? I think, I think where we're, where we're headed on the, on the virus itself, as I said, I, I think, um, not, not as bad as, uh, as anticipated. And, um, I, I'm sure all the glory will go to, uh, to those who clamped it down. I mean, the official story will be that Trump cured Corona. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he he will he will claim that right oh sure oh sure yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely uh, I'll, I'll to be honest i'd be a little disappointed if he didn't i'd be like <laughs> I'd be like what, what's going on that <laughs> tweet uh, will be coming out this summer um but I mean, I think that there's there's good reasons to be bearish, um, and that, that that macro story has sort of been waiting for a catalyst for for a while. Um, that this is the story of capitalism that you have mean reversion periods, whether that be wars or revolutions or pandemics or financial crises. That that it, it mean reverts, um, and that it becomes bad to be a capitalist. Um, during certain periods, and that a lot of the expectation of the rate of return is that people feel like it's a minefield, right? right? That you persistently have this rate of return because in any given 
week or month, years worth of returns will be wiped out in, in your equity holdings. And, and we're seeing that um, right now. And uh, I think that there's a reason to be bearish on this. I, you know, ironically, not because we're going to get this population annihilating disease, um, but, uh, but because of the, the economic uh, shutdown um, as a response. Um, and they're definitely going to bumble the, uh, the stimulus package. Well, that was my next question. I was, I was, what, what, what's your, I mean, again, we're, we're just seeing inter, you know, we're just seeing the, sh- the thing shape up. What, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you already left the cat out of the bag, but what do you think of what they're doing there? So. I mean, it's a bad habit of not helping the people, right? So for instance, I, I tweeted the other day when, when they, when they completely botched that first package. I tweeted, I'm like, if you're over the age of 12 and it took today to figure out that politicians don't give a shit about you, you need to read some books or something. Um, I mean, I think you know, if you look at, if you look at what happened, um, with the stimulus, um, in, uh, in the credit crisis, you know, it's, it's interesting. All the, for all the economists and everything, I felt like John Stewart on The Daily Show <laughs> was persistently saying the bailout package that would have that would have worked, which is just go directly towards these home workouts. And that wouldn't have been so expensive, right? So they spent close to a trillion dollars on that bailout. And if you take the number of homes that they needed to work out for a trillion dollars, they could have invested something like forty or fifty thousand dollars per home in a workout. That would have been enough to make everybody whole, both homeowners and banks. Right. And yet somehow they managed to not make any of those people whole and still spend a trillion dollars. Like, how do you, how do you mess that up? You mess it up by spending money on the people who lobby. Right. And not based upon the, the, the people who need it. Now here, so you look at, they're talking about two trillion dollars, right? So if you divide that by the U.S. population, you're talking about something like six thousand dollars per man, woman and child. So if you just sent everybody a check for $6,000, just keep it simple at that. You're talking about per family of four, $24,000, yep. right? A family of five, $30,000, right? If you send every family of five a check for $30,000, we're not going to have an economic Well, and that, and that was Kim and, you know, I, before you came on, I asked Kim, I'm like, what do you think about this $1,200 thing? And her and I were the same way. It's like, if you're, if you're doing 1200 you might as well do zero. You know, it's pointless. But like you said, now, if you give 30,000 to a family, then you're, you're doing something, you know, something's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And they're going to go out and spend that money. They're going to go spend and buy their kids clothes and go to the grocery store and maybe even put some money in a couple of investment accounts. Like they're going to do something with that money, pay their landlords, pay their mortgages. So we're in agreement there. So then my next question is, it feels like, you know, to me, and and I spend a lot of time, you know, especially, you know, finance related stuff is very active on Twitter. And I spend a lot of time there, you know, and it really feels like people are, you know, like the scab isn't healed from 08 yet. Yeah. It really feels like people are seeing through this. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you agree? I mean, I, I think, I think they screw this one up and man. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, even, even the, 
the anchors on the news are are talking about it, right? Um, I mean, it it is not just an underbelly of people on Twitter that feel like um, that maybe you know Wall, that uh, Washington is corrupt. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna. I, I think they screwed up, and again, they you know, oh eight was too soon. You know, it's like people haven't forgotten about that yet. You know, <laughs> they might do some things about some of the things that um, that people are most like hurt about over that, like um, paying huge bonuses to executives that got bailed out. Okay. Yeah. That was really annoying. Uh, you know, we, we allocated funds to bail out Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and they said, okay, thanks. And they paid that out in multi-million dollar bonuses um, to, uh, to their senior executives. Okay. that was annoying. So they'll, uh, they'll, you know, clamp down on that. Um, you know, at, at the same time, like there was, uh, you know, some, some difficulties like with, they were saying, okay, well, you know, you can't, you can't pay people who are being bailed out or something like that. But, um, it, in a bunch of situations they were talking about, uh, that you couldn't pay the people who came in to put out the fires. <laughs> right. That's not really fair. We brought these people in to like work around the clock and save these financial institutions. Now all of a sudden we're mad about saying that we should pay them for, for getting the job done. Okay. Um, but I think that there will be, there will be some of that now um, in terms of uh, clamping down on it. And, and also in terms of not being willing to pay people who were um, putting out the fires. Um, but you know, that it'll do nothing about the idea that they will not look out for the people who really need it. Um, and, and they're going to focus on their institutions that they're set up around. They're set up around how to bail out the Boeings of the world. Yeah. So they're going to do that kind of thing. Um, and they're set up around unemployment insurance. They are not set up around where the economy is in 2020. They are not set up to figure out how to help bartenders and gig employees and influencers and babysitters and all these sort of people who can't apply for unemployment claims, right? Yeah. Like if you were, if you were a nanny and now you can't nanny anymore for an extended period, your income stopped, you can't apply for unemployment claims and yet you're still out of work. If you were a small business person, a contract employee, yep. any of this kind of stuff, uh, you know, the stadium employees, as they're talking about, there's millions upon millions of workers. And we got this whole shift, um, not only because of, of technology, but, but because of the credit crisis um, and, and to, to some extent because of the Affordable Care Act of companies being resistant to have right. full-time employees. Yeah. So now we're in a situation where, where we have tens of millions of workers who are not traditionally employed, and those are the ones who are hardest hit here, where their paychecks just stopped. And we're going to get uh, a jobless claims number tomorrow morning that will probably be very bad. But I'm sure whatever it is, it will dramatically understate right. the, the number of people who uh, who actually are unemployed, like all the personal trainers and hairdressers and all those people totally. who just couldn't book appointments this week and don't know when they're going to be able to book an appointment again. 
So, you know, you know, and my next, and I've got a few questions, you know, left, but, uh, you know, is that, you know, is that just, are they just completely tone deaf or is that just the way the machine works? You know, when I say they politicians, you know, why wouldn't they give $6,000 a person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, are they that out of touch? Is it yeah, that corrupt? I mean, Is it both? I mean, that's the way the machine works. Um, I think, I mean, the, uh, you know, Washington is, is thoroughly corrupt. Um, <laughs> and, uh, it really is all about, um, fundraising. And, uh, there's, there's essentially no one in office who can't get there, who, who can get there without, um, being funded by, by lobbyists. Um, so they, they are completely beholden to, uh, to, to their, to the interests that put them there. Um, and it is not, it is not the voters, right? Uh, almost everybody in the house and Senate is in a pretty secure position, right? There's only, only a handful of senators who are up for reelection where it is at all contestable, right? Um, there is an even more narrow minority of, of Congress people where their uh, seats are at all contestable. So they are not beholden to the voters. They are, however, beholden to, to the lobbyists and to the, to the donors and the corporate interests who put them there. And, uh, and th- that's the way that they act uh, every time, whether it's on, on legislation or on bailouts or anything else, they're going to look out for, uh, for the lobbyists. Okay. Um, again, I've got a few, few questions left. Um, just looking for your expertise on these. So, you know, there's a lot of fear out there and, and, and you and Kim, I, I don't know if maybe you, you discussed me and my, for lack of a better term, <laughs> lack of fear. Okay. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't have a particular love for the media and the constant fear mongering, you know, like, like, listen, I believe in climate change, but I think telling telling six-year-olds that the world is going to end in 10 years is a terrible thing. And I think we get programmed a lot. I mean, do you know, I know people that like, I mean, that are freaking out. Is that appropriate? You know, you know, you know, you, you, or, 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 you know, now me, and again, I'm not cavalier, but I'm not worried. I'm not, I'm not like, oh no, I'm going to die. But there's people that are like losing their shit right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I, what? Are, how, how do you feel, like personally, you? you know? um, I mean, I, look, I think it was it was hard to estimate um, based upon the the stories that we're hearing, right? So the data that we're hearing and the stories that we're hearing out of Europe was something that is potentially more contagious than anything we've ever seen, or at the extreme and is at the extremes of mortality, right? So they give like this scatter plot of mortality and contagious. And the initial data was saying that, that, that the cases in Europe were not like Asia and that the mortality was on the order of Ebola and that, the, uh, that how contagious it is is like even more contagious than SARS maybe on the order of measles or smallpox or something like that. So if you have, uh, you know, there's a low mortality rate on measles, right? But if you have contagion of measles with the mortality of Ebola, 
then yeah, we're all in trouble, right? <laughs> and that was what we were initially looking at. Yeah. If, if a disease like that exists and hits us, yeah, you're talking about millions of deaths. Uh, and that's at first what it seemed like we were looking at. I, I think it's not widely known yet that we're probably not looking at that. And look, I can't sit here and say for sure um, uh, as of today that, uh, that we're not. Um, but it sure seems like the data are not, are not shaping up that way. Um, this is something that is clearly more contagious than most things, probably at the scary end. And it's at, definitely at the scary end of, of mortality. Um, so, you know, this might be sort of like a super SARS. It's highly related to SARS. Um, it might be a super SARS. They were worried that SARS would turn into this and then it just somehow petered out. Um, so no, I'm, I personally am not super worried, um, about this. Um, I, you know, I have, my concern is more about, uh, the economic Yep. Um, and, and how that will, how that will impact everything. Well, yeah, that's, that's, you know, I, I, when I talk about it, you know, and again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm no scientist, but like what I talk about is I'm more, I'm more scared of the mind virus part of it where, you know, we just get panic selling, panic selling, panic selling, and then it creates, you know, right. uh, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy then, you know, because everyone's freaking out, you know? Right. So, yeah. I mean, I, at the same time, like if I were, uh, if I were 80 years old, yeah. if you know, cancer, leukemia, if I were obese, if I were a two pack a day smoker, yep. or any of these things, yeah, I, I'd be double bolting my door and staying uh, <laughs> on lockdown. And I think those people should. Um, you know, this is certainly scary for anybody. It's certainly scary, scary for them. So, so that that actually segues into my next question and the, and the one thing I was wondering about. So, like. End of January. So, so I know a lot of people say they never get sick, but I mean, I, you know, I live in a northern climate. I very routinely never get a cold, even in the winter, etc. In January, I was it was bad, man. I could barely talk without coughing, coughing, cough. I mean, and this is before we even really knew about it. You know, they were talking about it a little bit in China, but I travel a lot. I fly somewhere almost almost every month. I'm flying somewhere. And I mean, it was bad. Yeah, I think I had it, and I got right. over it. I mean, it, it, I, I've heard a number of these stories now of people who uh, who think that they it was got bad, it. man. I was like, like I couldn't yeah. finish a sentence. You know, I've, I've been I've been hearing this. I, I've got several good friends who who have similar stories. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'd say from conditional probability standpoint, it. The statistics would say that, and then, you know, the behavioral economics, psychology and statistics would say that we are likely to misattribute regular things, regular illnesses when we know about something like that. That's what, okay, that's a thing. At the same time, like, there are so many question marks about this thing. Can we rule out um, that... Uh, that, that it was spreading before people know, uh, no, like we can't rule that out. I mean, in fact, the, the kind of prevailing theory right now on had on how this spread so fast is that it must have been circulating before. Um, and I, I think that there's going to be question marks and I, I think this will be probably something conspiracy theorists pick up because probably, 
People will not be satisfied with what the ultimate answer was. People will be telling stories like, like the one you did. Um, some people will say that there was misinformation, that they were hiding it, or that the disease existed before November. Some people will say that, uh, that it was, you know, a deliberate, that it was, you know, a biological attack or, you know, bioattacks from China. That's well, well done, by the way, because that was my final question. <laughs> I was, I was, I was going to close with the Alex Jones question. Well done. <laughs> you segued right into it. <laughs> I'm on your wavelength, man. I see where you're going. <laughs> I, think I think this will be one of those things like, you know, the psychology around dramatic events, um, particularly things that are like of a cataclysmic variety seems to suggest that they will always inevitably create conspiracy. Sure. (laughs) So there is never any dramatic cataclysmic event that doesn't create conspiracy theory. And so part of that is because we have this psychological tendency to want for the reasons for something to seem to match in magnitude with the effect of something. So something that has a really big effect must have a really big reason. Right. right? Yeah. So if we're given some sort of like simple reason, it just feels like that shouldn't add up. Right. We say, well, it's like, like, you know, the I, 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 guy named Lee Harvey Oswald was able to change. Or I was going to, I was going to go with, with Epstein. You know, it's like Epstein. It's like, he, I said from the beginning, he probably just killed himself, but, but people aren't happy with that. You know, they want it to be so much bigger, you know, you know, or yeah, I mean, or the idea, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right that 19 deranged hijackers yep. should be able to change the entire course of history, kill thousands of Americans, start two wars. It, it, it just doesn't match. Right. So whether or not that story is right, it definitely doesn't feel right to us in terms of like the magnitudes of input and output. And so psychologically, we don't like that. Um, and so that, that is inclined to exist here. At the same time, there are some things that even the experts legitimately don't have answers to at this point. Um, now, there will probably, inevitably, there will certainly be research on this. The epidemiologists will publish it. They're, they will be trying to figure out after the fact, what the heck happened here? How did it spread so fast? How did it get all over the world? Why didn't the clampdowns work? How high is the R not? Like all these kind of things, they're going to try to figure out from a research standpoint. I can also guarantee you that no matter what's published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Alex Jones isn't going to buy it. <laughs> like, um, so, I, yeah, we do have some unanswered questions um, right now. And... Uh, so one of them is sort of the Moore's Law thing, which they've been advancing uh, on the news. That is to say that it was spreading before we had reported cases. How? We don't, we don't 100% know. Um, was it existing in China? Were Chinese travelers traveling um, when we thought they were on lockdown? Like, what's, was it existing in other places when we didn't know about? Did China, was it existing in China before November? Lots of potential ways that it could have been spreading elsewhere. And yet, but at the same time, what doesn't add up to me about that is how was it not being reported? If you had this really 
uh, really lethal disease spreading, and it's outside of Wuhan, China. It's in northern Italy. It's in in continental United States, and people are getting it. How how was the United States and Italy not reporting that to the WHO? How were ICU doctors not saying this thing is not the flu? Right. What yeah. what is going right? People must have been affecting people if it was if it was spreading, right? So you didn't go to the hospital, but if if it was spreading around, if you got it from someone. Someone must have been going to the hospital. Sure, right? sure. Yeah. Well, um, someone older than me, someone with a different yeah, risk definitely. profile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? Um, that so that, that's like an unanswered question right now about this, what they're calling community spread thing, is how was it only and exclusively spreading amongst people that weren't going to hospitals? And then all of a sudden, in February, we round the corner, and we went from all young people to, like, all old people, and uh, all the old people show up and start dying. Like, that's, you know, that doesn't uh, make sense. So I think it's it's things like that that will make people reach for the conspiracy theories um, of, of saying that it was it was deliberately spread or we're not being told. Well, that. and that and that's my that's my last question. We'll we'll kind of take this home. I mean, and it's kind of a conspiracy theory, but it's it's kind of also a, a real question. I mean, in, again, in your opinion, do you, do you do you think this came from the wet markets? You know, what uh, animal type thing, or do you yeah. think it? escape from a lab. I mean, and I know that's conspiracy theory stuff, but you know, where, where, where do you, in your opinion, was yeah. it, was it the bats or, or what was it? You know? Um, I think, I think escape from a lab is, is less likely. Sure. Uh, I think that, um, I, I believe the American scientists who have worked, our, our epidemiologists go over there and, and work a lot, and they help set up the uh, the safety protocols um, and that kind of thing. I I believe that that they probably don't just let viruses slip out. Um, mm. I think if you're going to reach for conspiracy theories, um, I think the idea of it being deliberate rather than an accident is probably more more plausible, right? I, I think it's easier to see how there could be clear winners in, in a deliberate thing like this. Right. Um, and, uh, and one of those winners potentially being China. Right. Um, so I could see conspiracy theorists reaching towards the idea of saying what we currently know of this virus is that Westerners have a much higher mortality rate than Asians and old people have a much higher mortality rate than young. Now you could reach for the idea that, Chinese people need to get rid of the older portion of their population. And if they had something that killed Westerners at a rate 10 to 20 times the rate. Boo, they're, they're really going to feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. Or like you could imagine in, in an evil empire like the communist Chinese government, you could imagine somebody being so diabolical as if they had come across such a virus where it is mostly mild symptoms amongst younger people and especially younger Asians and very deadly to older people, older people that are expensive to their medical system and a much higher mortality rate in the West. You could imagine someone being so diabolical as to intentionally spread that. Um, Not saying that there's any reason to know that that's the case, Mm. um, but I would think if, if I were at senior levels of government, I would want 
to be investigating that. I would want the FBI on it. And what they're not going to do is with, uh, investigate it and communicate one way or another. Right. In a <laughs> what they really should be doing, because everyone's going to be thinking about it, talking about it, and not just the conspiracy theorists. Regular people are thinking, mm-hmm. what the heck is going on here? Right. Right. Totally. Um, and, and really the people in power should be saying, is it, we had, we had the FBI look into, uh, the bioweapon attack idea. Um, here, here's what we found. We're making a public report available in the same way they did with the 9-11 commission report or something like that, which by the way is like an excellent document. Most people didn't read it. But that book is unbelievable. Like, it's it's congressional testimony. It will make you cry. It will make you be informed. It will whatever. They should uh, come out with something like that on on this on really properly investigating what the heck happened and uh, and and do something that would at least make all but the Alex Jones feel comfortable about uh, that there was an analysis on what happened. But to, to follow up, what do you think? You know, it's he he, he danced around that pretty well. He did. He did. I, I, I think that I think that there were real questions, um, and and I think that um, I think that there are not answers for some legitimate questions that that should make people suspicious of of what we know now. Um, that that's a reason for that's a reason for research. Um, I think, you know, as, as somebody who tries to approach things scientifically, I can see reasons for those hypotheses. I don't think that the hypothesis on either side, I don't think that the community spread thing is an unreasonable hypothesis, but I don't think that some of the other alternative theories, the conspiracy theories are completely unreasonable hypotheses that no one should ever look into. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately probably it will, uh, it will be treated that way. Well, uh, well, Zach, man, I really appreciate your insight. This was, this was awesome, man. Um, it's nice to have a, again, an informed discussion about this stuff when there's a, mm-hmm. a you know, a lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of mini Alex Jones out there right now. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, if you would love, you know, again, I'm, I'm a very optimistic guy. I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel with the self isolation. I think it was smart. Would love to have you back, you know, hopefully, you know, this mm-hmm. summer or something and we can I look would. back and, you know, it's under yeah. control and, and, and kind of look yeah. back at this stuff. But, but thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Yeah, the, the disease will be behind us by the summer. It yeah. Will. Yep. Um, yeah. I, will, I will bet on that. Whether the stock market is back to all time highs is a different question. I think not, but, uh, but the disease will be gone by, by the summer. Thank wow. you, Zach, so yeah. much for coming. All right. Thanks. And, and actually, Zach, I mean, just, just real quick, do you, uh, you know, I always like to give, you know, with the podcast, people an opportunity to follow you. Are you, are you active on social? You got a book or any of that stuff or not? Um, no, I, I don't have an, any, uh, any financial ones, uh, like that. Um, but, uh, if they reach out to you and people are interested in, uh, in data or, or anything Perfect. like that. Uh, people want to sign up for classes at, uh, at NYU, um, <laughs> in the New York city area that, uh, that I welcome that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, thank you everyone for listening to the steady trade podcast. As always, if you're listening on your iPod, iPod or iPod on your, on your iPhone or your Android, uh, definitely head over to steadytrade.com. 
We'll link to everything. We'll, we'll link to Zach. We'll link to some of the references. And as he mentioned, if, if you're interested in maybe learning some more, just hit that contact form on SteadyTrade.com, and we'll put you in touch with Zach. So thanks, Zach. Thanks, Kim. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the Steady Trade Podcast. And as usual, if you have any questions, concerns, or recommendations for us, please check us out at SteadyTrade.com, where we actually post transcripts of the episode and recap blog posts of the episode. It's a great resource if you're looking to expand your trading and get a more immersive experience from the Steady Trade Podcast. 